0: Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 in your Bibles this morning. Well, this is our time together to bask in the glory of our God and Savior. It's our Sunday morning where we get to sing about Him, we get to talk about Him, we get to serve Him, and we get to think about Him. And what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us as A.W. Tozer observed, and of course that is also true of the Lord Jesus Christ. What comes into your mind when you think of the person of Jesus is the most important thing about you, for Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He is the one who reveals the Father. He is one with the Father. And so, just as we must be careful to guard our hearts, to guard our thoughts about who God is and how we think of him, practically, So we must also be careful to guard our thoughts and guard our hearts about how we think about our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the revealer of God. So let me ask you this question. What does Christ look like? So often we think about Jesus Christ in his humiliation. We think of perhaps Sunday school lessons with flannel graphs of a picture of Jesus. Or we think of television shows or movies that portray Jesus Christ. And we get an image of what he may have looked like. Now, of course, all of those traditional images of Christ have very little to do with the historical reality, but more to do with our culture and our traditions. But Jesus Christ was, for a short time just like one of us in his appearance. However, that was only for a short time. And when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ today, you should not think about him according to his time of humility, but you should think of him according to how he was before that, for the ages of the ages, and how he is and always will be the glorified God-man. Yes, he still retains his humanity, He's still in a physical body, a resurrected body, a glorified body. But now, not only is he in the appearance of a man, but he is with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. When we come to Revelation chapter 1, we get the only portrait of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The Gospels are silent about the physical features of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not remarkable in his physical appearance during his time of humiliation, but he is certainly remarkable in his appearance now. And how you think about the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you, so be careful that you don't get your image and your thoughts of Jesus Christ from some television show or some movie, but that you get your thoughts about the Lord Jesus Christ from God's Word and the portrait that the Holy Spirit has left us of our Lord. That's what we have this morning in Revelation chapter 1, and I believe that The professing church of Jesus Christ needs this. We also need a renewed vision of Jesus Christ. That when you hear that name, you would think of what we have here in Revelation chapter 1. Do we really realize who it is that we're dealing with? Do we really realize who it is that is our Good Shepherd, who dwells among us here when we gather in his name A couple of verses here to set the tone for us as we prepare to study Revelation chapter 1. John 1.18 is where the same author who wrote the book of Revelation has in his introduction to the gospel this truth that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Whenever someone saw a vision of God in the Old Testament, whether it was Daniel, whether it was Ezekiel, whether it was Moses, whether it was Isaiah, whoever it was, that saw a vision of the glory of God, they did not see the Father, but they saw the only begotten God, as he is called in John 1.18, that he is the one who makes him known. As Jesus himself told his disciples, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Dan began our worship this morning talking about how God is a spirit. He doesn't have an arm. He doesn't have physical eyes. But Jesus Christ does. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and the firstborn from the dead, as John writes in Revelation. And so this morning as we come to Revelation 1 and the vision of the glory of Jesus Christ I want us to have a partial fulfillment of Jesus Christ's prayer for the church. John chapter 17, verse 24 is very profound. And it says there, Jesus is praying, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And in one sense, because Jesus Christ is with us, there is a partial fulfillment of that even in his absence. But we look forward to the day when we are with him face to face. To see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We want to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate purpose of our existence. That is the ultimate purpose of our redemption, that we will behold him face to face. Right now the scripture says we behold him dimly, like in an imperfect mirror. And yet, as we behold Him, as we see Him, as we understand Him, we are transformed into His likeness day by day. And so really the ministry of the pulpit in the Christian church is the ministry of shining forth the glory of Jesus Christ, that you might see the face of Christ with the eyes of faith, and that by seeing Christ, you are changed into His likeness and His image. And so may the Lord Jesus Christ show himself to us this morning through his word. And that's my privilege to be able to share with you the words that show the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us pray. Father, we desire to be with Jesus Christ where he is. We know that he has gone to prepare a place for us so that where he is we may also be. And we want to be in that place because we want to be with him, with his person, with his glory, your son, the one who perfectly reveals you, the invisible God. Father, give us eyes to see the face of Jesus Christ with the heart. Lord, open up our eyes, open up our ears to hear and see Jesus Christ in his glory so that we might be able to see everything else in its proper perspective. Amen. Leon Morris wrote, Nothing can be seen, truly, until Jesus Christ be seen. Jesus Christ is the one who sets everything else in its proper perspective. And so, this morning, we'll see the Lord of the church in his resurrected glory. And as we do that, we lose all fear and we learn to listen obediently to Jesus Christ. That's our goal. So let's read the text in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here you see the outline for this morning it's all about Christ. And Christ is the Lord of the churches. The Lord of the churches has his servant John. We see him first. But then we want to take note of Christ's concern. And that is where Christ is standing in the midst of the lampstands. Where we stand is where we are concerned, where our interests lie. Then we'll see Christ's glory, the physical representation of his glory in this vision. And then we'll hear Christ's words as he responds after the vision of the Son of Man. So that is how we're going to proceed. Let's take a first look at Christ's servant John. We see him once again in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John speaks of where he is and when he is. The first thing I want to talk about is the fact that he says that it was on the Lord's day that he was in the Spirit in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This phrase, the Lord's day, this is the only place it occurs in the Bible. And so there's been questions as to what does this phrase mean. Well, I would remind you that the book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible to be written. I believe it was written around 95 A.D., over 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have other writings that are not New Testament writings that are very close to this time period that have been retained and copied and kept by the church down through the centuries. One of those early church writings is known as the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. In short, it's called the Didache, which means the Twelve. And in the Didache, it says this, Every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving. So the phrase, the Lord's Day, while it only appears in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, it does appear in these early writings. And it is clear that the Lord's Day in the early church was a reference to the Sunday gatherings of the church. That the Sabbath day for the Jewish people was their day of rest, their day of worship, devoted to the Lord. That was Saturday. But that Jesus Christ rose on Sunday and that very early in the church's history, They began meeting on Sunday, and we have that recorded in the New Testament. The only time that it's called the Lord's Day is here in Revelation, but you can read in the letters of the New Testament and even in the Gospels that the disciples met together on Sunday, the first day of the week. The Didache was probably written between 75 and 120. We're not exactly sure. So around the time that the book of Revelation was written. Another early church document, the Epistle of Barnabas, not written by the Barnabas that we know in the New Testament. Also, very early in the church, either late 1st century or early 2nd century, it says this, We keep the eighth day with joyfulness, the day also on which Jesus rose again from the dead. So the Lord's Day was called the eighth day because it was the beginning of the new creation. You had the first seven days where God created the world on the eighth day, jesus rose again which would be a a sunday and comes after the first seven days so the eighth day and that was the day on which jesus rose again which is sunday and then another early new testament document ignatius of antioch wrote as a letter to the church at magnesia no longer do we observe the sabbath but living in the observance of the lord's day on which also our life has sprung up again by him Tying the resurrection with the observance of the Lord's Day in Ignatius' letter. And in another one of his letters sent to another church, he writes that at the dawning of the Lord's Day, he arose from the dead. So I believe it's very clear from church history that the Lord's Day, as it is referenced here in the last book of the New Testament, is Sunday, the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead when the church would gather and be built up in our faith with the giving of thanks and the eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. So that's the time. The place he identifies as the island of Patmos. Here's a picture of Patmos today. It's an island that you might enjoy being on, but back then it wasn't as developed as it is now. It was a rather sparsely populated island in John's day. There was a Roman fortification there. And the practice of exiling political prisoners to islands was one that was common during the reign of Domitian, when John wrote the book of Revelation. And the purpose of an exile was that on an island you can control the comings and goings of a person. You had to get on a ship. All the ships that would come and go on this island would have their passengers and their manifest checked by the Roman authorities. So there was no way to get off the island without Roman permission. And so this is where John is. And all of the early church fathers tell us that John was here as a political prisoner of the emperor Domitian. And that's what is referenced when he says simply, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It was because John would not stop declaring the word of God that he was imprisoned on this island. Now we shouldn't think of the imprisonment on this island as like Alcatraz. It wasn't that type of prison. That banishment meant that you just had to stay on the island and wasn't necessarily in a jail cell. Another key that we see about Christ's servant here, John, is that the manner that he receives this revelation, where he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit. So he's on the island, it's on the Lord's day, and it is in the Spirit. What does that mean? In the Spirit is a reference throughout the book of Revelation to being in a trance like state in which someone is able to see visions. This is similar to the Old Testament prophets, that all the way back in Numbers, God told Moses, when I speak to a prophet, I will speak in dreams or visions. A vision is something that is like a dream, but you're not asleep. You're awake, but you are seeing things almost like a dream. And we have that throughout scripture. Daniel refers to dreams and visions, many other parts in the scriptures talk about dreams and visions. Well, this isn't a dream because he's awake, but it is a vision. And so John is a seer and he receives this vision, this waking dream of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to him in this loud voice like a trumpet and then turning and seeing him. Now, that is all that we need to know for now about Christ's servant. Let's take a closer look at Christ's concern, that is Christ among the churches. Verse 12 After the loud voice speaks, John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking and on turning. And I like this, that the voice comes from behind and he has to turn to see who it is that is speaking to him because this is dramatic action. And I appreciate the regal drama that is here in Revelation chapter 1. It's one of the most profound, one of the most holy, one of the most stately passages in all of Scripture And so this action of turning to see the one and first noticing the lampstands. He turns to see who is speaking and he sees seven golden lampstands. And this is where Christ stands. This is where Christ is located. And this shows us Christ's concern. Where does Christ take his stand? Out of all the places in the world where we could see Christ, where we could have Christ's presence, well, it's here. The God who created the sky, the God who created the molten core of this earth, the God who spread the stars in space, the one who spoke everything into existence, he has a place where he stands in the world. He has a place where his interests lie, where he is most concerned, and and that is here among you and I. Do we recognize the importance of what we are? of what it is that is being accomplished when we gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a solemnity that is to mark the church of Jesus Christ. There is a respect that is supposed to mark us as we recognize who it is that is present with us. As Jesus Christ said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we come into God's presence with a holy dread, A godly fear and deep gratitude that out of all the people in the world that God could choose to dwell with, he has chosen us. Why? Not because of anything in us, not because of anything we are, but only to show the greatness of his grace, the greatness of his condescension, that he chooses nobody's. And we are his concern. We are where he stands as the text identifies in verse 20, that these seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And those seven churches are representative of all churches in all times and places. Christ doesn't stand in parliaments or congresses or white houses or among the glories of nature in the Grand Canyon or on foreign planets, but God stands here with us this morning, just as he did stand with those churches then and there. Second Chronicles chapter 4, verse 20, speaks about the temple where the lampstands and their lamps of pure gold were placed to burn before the inner sanctuary as prescribed in the law of Moses. And so that's why this picture of the lampstand is used to represent the churches, that we are the light of the world, we are the light that is burning with the holiness of God and so that people can see the glory of God in the world. As lampstands in the temple, Jesus told his disciples, you are the light of the world. Do you recognize how important the church is? Not just speaking about the universal church, but the local church. Because without the local church, there is no universal church. Do you realize how important the church is? There's one light in the world. We are a part of that one light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So how about you? You're a part of this. Are you shining your light? The light of Jesus Christ, is it dwelling in you? It's important for us to recognize who we are. Well, that's Christ's concern. He stands among the churches. Let's then take a look at Christ's glory, which is the focus of this passage. And that's here in verses 13 to 16. This is why we had our scripture reading from Daniel chapter 10. The description of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have here. The one who is standing in the midst of the lampstands is one like a son of man, as it says in verse 13. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. That picture of Jesus Christ is drawn heavily. It has remarkable similarities to where we had our scripture reading in Daniel chapter 10. I'd like you to keep a marker in Daniel chapter 10 as we may be going back and forth between these two. But back in Daniel chapter 10, we see that the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ is just like what we have in Revelation chapter 2. Now, in Daniel 10, it's not exactly clear who it is that we're dealing with. After Daniel faints and is restored, then it seems like he's talking with an angel after that. But the vision that he sees at the beginning, in light of what the book of Revelation does with this, makes it pretty clear to me that the vision that Daniel sees is the same vision that John sees and that we're dealing with the same person at the beginning of Daniel chapter 10. No mere angel, but instead the second person of the Trinity. Let's read it once again. Daniel chapter 10, where it says in verse 5, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man, one like a son of man, clothed in linen, that long robe with a belt of fine gold. That's exactly what it says in Revelation. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, which is very similar to the sun shining in full strength, the brightness of lightning like the brightness of the sun. His eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. That is very close to the description that we have in Revelation chapter 2. Let's talk first about the likeness of Jesus Christ. It says back in Revelation that standing amidst these seven golden lampstands was one like a son of man. And as you remember, this goes back to Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, where in the night visions Daniel saw one like a son of man coming to the ancient of days to receive this eternal kingdom. And so the son of man is a big focus here in the opening chapter of Revelation, and that's how he's described in the vision. When it says he's like a son of man, both in Daniel and in Revelation, he's like a son of man because we are created in the image and likeness of God. You go all the way back to the beginning, and when God created man upon the earth, he said, Let us make man in our image. And so, male and female, God created us in his image. And so. That's why God can describe himself as having an arm and that's why God can describe himself as having eyes because even though he's a spirit and he doesn't physically have those things, he has created us in his likeness to be the physical representation of many of God's characteristics and attributes upon the earth. And so we are his regents upon the earth, his agents upon the earth. So that's what we were designed to be until we fell away from God and marred the image of God. And we're no longer like him in so many ways. And yet, we are here to be redeemed. And so Jesus Christ, becoming a human being, he was made like us, as it says in Hebrews, in all things so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to god we were first created in god's image then jesus christ became like us and jesus christ is the perfect image who is the one who restores the rest of us to that holy and righteous image of god that we were created to be so we're like him because he is who he is and he made us to be like him and he's like us because he has come to redeem us and to save us from how we had become unlike him. It's a fascinating study on the image of God from beginning to end with our fall and Jesus Christ as the redeemer of the image of God and that's what is contained in that thought of one like a son of man. Now, When we come to Daniel chapter 10 and Genesis and we come and talk about how all of this ties together, what you're going to see this morning as we throw verse after verse up on the screen is the intertextuality of the Bible, that the Bible has a hidden glory, that if you just look at the Bible in isolation, it doesn't seem like much. The book of Revelation by itself would not be considered great literature because John was just a so-so writer. However... Because of the Spirit of God, because of how God connects all Scripture together, there's an intertextuality. One text connects and builds off of another and contains the ideas that flow from other texts. Because God has put it all together, he's used individuals like John, who were not great writers in and of themselves, to be a part of something much bigger than the individual author. And so when you study Scripture as a whole and you see how it connects and relates, you find that it is a book like no other. And that it repays study like no other. And that it has a a profundity and a depth that goes beyond the most skilled authors who have ever existed in any language because of the God who has inspired it and connected it and tied it together. So I just love studying and teaching the Bible. And I want you to appreciate how it all works together to create something truly glorious. Now, where were we? We were talking about his likeness. And this also reminds us then of what we studied not too long ago in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus was standing on trial and he spoke to the Jewish high priest and all of the Sanhedrin and they asked him, are you the Christ? And he confessed it openly before his enemies, knowing that it would lead to his crucifixion and he said, I am. There's power in that statement going all the way back to Exodus, I am who I am. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And that's where Jesus is right now. He's seated at the right hand of power. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted prophecy of Christ in the New Testament. Over and over again, the New Testament writers say, Jesus Christ was on earth. Jesus Christ walked among us. Jesus Christ died and he was buried. But right now, where is he? He is seated at the right hand of God. His prayer has been answered. And he now has the glory that he shared with the Father before the world was. The glory that Isaiah saw seated on the throne. The glory that Ezekiel saw rolling through the clouds. The glory of God—that is Jesus Christ and His glory—and He's our Shepherd, He's our Lord, He's our friend. And with a friend and a Shepherd like that, who do we have to fear? You know, evangelicals who are a pitiful lot who have no idea of who Jesus Christ is because we run around like sheep without a Shepherd. We run around wringing our hands, being afraid, worried about the future, bemoaning our own failures. Get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes off the world, get your eyes off the church and get them back on Jesus Christ. With a shepherd like that, what do you have to fear? I can say with perfect humility that this church has a perfect pastor. You have the pastor that you need who will always be there for you, who will never forsake you, who feeds you, who cares for you, Who died for you, who lives for you? Can you see him? Or do you just see me? If you just see me, you got problems. (laughs) But if you see Jesus Christ, and you see him here, then you got confidence, you got joy, you got hope. See, you don't see anything clearly until you see Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus Christ, then everything else is put into perspective. Let's lift him up. Let's see him. So, let's take a look at his clothing. We've looked at his person. Let's look at his raiment. I use words like raiment because it sounds more elevated. We're dealing with very elevated themes this morning. So, rather than just talk about his clothing, we'll talk about his raiment. Well, in Daniel... He's clothed very much like he is here. As we just read, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. And what do we have in the book of Revelation? We have a man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So the same one in Daniel we have here in Revelation chapter 1. The same God who God was glorified on the throne in Isaiah is the God who is here with us this morning. The same God that Ezekiel had vision to be able to see in his chariot in the clouds is the same God who stands here with us today. If only we have eyes to see him. He's dressed in heavenly clothing. He's dressed with dignity. He's dressed with power. He's dressed with authority. And you know what? There's something special about the clothing of Jesus Christ that you will appreciate is that he's going to share it with you. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Jesus speaking to the church in Revelation 3, verse 4, he says, You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So you're a Christian, You're in a church. Are you walking in soiled garments? Or are you walking in the purity of holiness? If you walk in the purity of holiness, then Jesus Christ promises you that he will share his heavenly raiment with you and that you will walk with him in the dignity and the glory of the angels and the Son of God himself. He's going to share his clothing, his glory, with you if you are faithful to him. In this present time, in this dirty world that we live in. So keep your garments clean, Jesus tells us, like my garments are clean. Also, we want to take a look at his visage. Keep the elevated language here. Visage is a fancy word for face. His visage. You see in the text, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. And that not just the hairs, but his whole face is this bright whiteness. Now, this is in keeping with the image that Daniel saw of the Ancient of Days. You remember in Daniel chapter 7, where we've got the vision of the Son of Man coming before the throne of God, who is the Ancient of Days. Well, right before Daniel 7.13, where the Son of Man appears, we've got the Father on his throne in Daniel 7.9, and you see that the Ancient of Days has clothing white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. So the attributes of God are the attributes of Jesus Christ. The appearance of the Father in a vision is the same as the appearance of Jesus in a vision. Also you see in his visage his flaming eyes. This goes back to Daniel chapter 10 once again. So just as Revelation chapter 1 says his eyes, in verse 14, were like a flame of fire, so in Daniel chapter 10, when Daniel saw Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate glory, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. And what does that represent? Why are we having a picture of flaming eyes? Well, this is a picture of a fierce, penetrating vision that is supernatural. That his eyes don't just receive light, that his eyes send forth light so that he can penetrate and see what is in the darkness. One of the cool thing about cats' eyes is that they reflect light that's coming in and then shoot them back out. So a cat can see well in the dark because it is reflecting what little light there is around it back at to what it's looking at. And that's why their eyes glow in the dark. It's reflecting the light and putting it back out. Well, Jesus' eyes glow in the dark because he is light. He doesn't require light outside of himself to be able to see, but the light that he sees with comes from his own person. And so this supernatural, penetrating vision sees all and knows all. This becomes relevant in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, where God speaks to the churches, and in almost every one of the introductions to his letter to the churches, Jesus draws upon the revelation of himself in chapter 1 to remind the church who it is that is speaking to them. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, he writes, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus Christ has eyes like a flame of fire. I don't see your heart, but Jesus Christ does. He knows who is walking faithfully with him and who is not walking faithfully with him. He knows who's obeying his command to forgive one another, to love one another, to open up your heart to one another. And he knows who is harboring bitterness and resentment. He sees. He knows. So don't come here on a Sunday morning and think it really matters what people think about you. But Recognize that when you come and you take your seat in the church of God, and that Jesus Christ is here, and he's peering into the heart of each one of us with his flaming eyes of fire, all things are open and laid bare to him. You can't hide from God in the garden like Adam and Eve. There's no use in hiding your sin, so confess it and forsake it. Listen to his rebuke as he rebukes the church at Thyatira, and he sees and he knows. Not only does he see and know the bad, but he sees and knows the good. And he makes that very clear in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Sometimes you get tired of doing good. You think nobody notices. You think nobody cares. You think it's not making any difference. Well, Jesus Christ's eyes see every good intention of your heart, every Holy Spirit-inspired motivation, every act of humble service that no one else notices. He sees. He knows. He has the penetrating vision. This is the one that we have to deal with. So we see his person, we see his raiment, we see his visage. Let's also take a look at his feet, very similar here. It's also quoted in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. His feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And that picture is also drawn from Daniel. We had that same reference to the body like barrel and the feet, burnished bronze. He quotes to the church in Thyatira, just like the flame of fire is there. So the feet are his judgment. He sees all and then his feet are able to bring judgment upon those that he tramples upon. This is Daniel chapter 10 verse 6. His arms and his legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. So glowing metal in the furnace there as it's described in Revelation chapter 1. Quite the picture. His voice is what we hear uh, described next. And his voice in the description in verse 15 is like the roar of many waters. Have you ever been by the ocean side? Have you heard the tide breaking and hear the the waves crashing out on the sea? Have you ever been out on a boat in the midst of a tumultuous sea and heard the sound of many waters surrounding you? Or perhaps you've been to a giant waterfall. I'm not talking about a little waterfall. I'm talking about a roaring, overpowering waterfall. If you stood at the foot of, of such many waters crashing and breaking. Well, that's the description for his voice in verse 15. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 10, he'd mentioned that it was a great voice. That word great in Greek is the word mega. And the word voice is phoné, and so a megaphone is how we bring both of those words over into English. And if I was up here with a megaphone, I'd be getting a great voice. Well, that's what the speakers are supposed to do, right? But we try not to turn them up too loud. And then it's also described like a trumpet. A trumpet was an instrument that was used to get people's attention, especially on the battlefield. Battlefields can be pretty loud. So if you're going to get people's attention on the battlefield, you need the sound of a trumpet that's going to be loud enough that everyone can hear it. And so the voice of Jesus Christ is like a trumpet. It can be heard over the din of a battlefield. It's what we're supposed to be paying attention to. It's like the roar of many waters with the strength that is behind it. The vast immensity of the person who is speaking this also corresponds with Daniel chapter 10. We've been doing it all the time. Might as well keep going. The sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. His voice like the sound of a multitude. And I love this verse in Psalm 29 verses 4 and 5. I wanted you to see it this morning. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Cedars of Lebanon were like the redwood forest of their day, their ancient world. And so can you imagine the redwoods in California having a voice that just smashes them to timbers and breaks them apart so that they collapse? That's the voice of the Lord in its power and its strength. Just the sound of his voice is able to destroy the strongest trees that have withstood thousands of years of storms. And then let's take a look also at his hands. In his hands, we are told in the text... He held seven stars and we'll talk more about the seven stars and what that means for us when in three weeks we get into Revelation chapters 2 and 3 because the seven stars are identified in verse 20 as the angels of the seven churches and each letter to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 says to the angel of the church in Ephesus and so on. So who are these seven angels and what does it mean that he holds them in his hand? More on that in the future. But then finally his mouth is described at the end of verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now this visually is a disturbing picture, but you're not supposed to be thinking about these things visually as much as you're supposed to be thinking about them spiritually, metaphorically. And that's one thing that is true about Bible imagery that is not as true about our metaphors. We tend to be more visual in our thinking, but they were more thinking according to the idea. And so, it's not so much that you should picture a sword coming out of a mouth, but instead you should be thinking about the fact that his words can cut people to pieces like a sword, that his words are powerful as a weapon, and that he doesn't need a gun in his holster. He doesn't need a rocket launcher on his shoulder. All he needs is the sound of his voice in order to destroy his enemies. And the Romans taught their soldiers to use their swords to kill. And so this image of the sharp, two-edged sword is a violent image. And we find that to be true when we continue reading in the book of Revelation. Later on in the book, when Christ comes again in judgment, we are told from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is the one who is our Lord. This is the one who is our friend. This is the one who is here with us today. He is the one who will strike down the nations with the words that come from his mouth. The book to the Thessalonians describes the coming of the Antichrist and the destruction of Antichrist that the Lord will destroy at his appearing with the word, the breath of his mouth. The Antichrist will have a global power armies at his command and yet it only takes the word of jesus christ alone to destroy and vanquish this enemy of all enemies but don't just think of the sharp sword which comes from his mouth as something that he's going to use against his enemies in the future but you also need to be in fear of the power of god's word for In Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 and 16, Jesus writes to the church and says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them. The them is the false teachers that were in the church. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus Christ can use his sword in the church as well as in the world. And if you think that you can persist In going against God and destroying his church, think again. God will destroy those who destroy his church. Those who are false teachers, you don't know when Jesus Christ is going to come and have his vengeance. He's patient. He waits. He warns. He sends people to, to tell you, you need to turn from this. You need to stop doing this. But if you do not listen, then you don't know when he's going to come and wage war with the sword that comes from his mouth. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. There are many warnings in the book of Hebrews, as there will be many warnings in the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And as Christ speaks to the church in the book of Hebrews and as he speaks to the church in Revelation, we are reminded that we have to be careful that we don't become overly informal and casual in our dealings with God. We live in an age where everyone wants to be informal, everyone wants to be casual. Just this week there were changes to the Senate dress code so that senators no longer have to dress formally for the work that they're doing. Uh, Maybe the the halls there are not as hallowed as they once were. Children don't address adults as Mr. or Mrs. or Sir or Ma'am. Everyone wants to just have informality. Well, beware of being over-familiar with this Christ. The way that we've seen him here this morning helps us to remember, to reverence him. Hey, God, is not an appropriate way to start a prayer. Think about who it is that you're talking to. Address him with respect. Yes, he is your friend. He has deigned to call you his friend. But that doesn't mean that you should be casual in your relationship with him. He's not like us. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's think about that. Let's live in light of that truth. Let's remember the Lord Jesus Christ as he is, not as he was. It's good to remember as he was, but it's very important that we also remember him as he is.